Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. The Biden campaign, I think, is showing us a way of governing that is not centered on one personality. And I like that and I want it. I like having days where I honestly don't think about Joe Biden. I would like to have more days like that where I honestly don't have to have a thought about the president. But maybe I'm thinking about someone in the cabinet today or maybe I'm thinking about someone in Congress who's leading an effort. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today is entitled All the Prognostications. Okay, we're just going to go through what people who analyze data are saying about all of the important races, not just the presidential election, but all of the important races coming up. Before that, we're going to do some headlines, things coming up this week to be watching for. We'll end, as always, with what's on our minds outside of politics. Before we jump into all that, we need to do some corrections. I hate getting things wrong so much. So these have been like hanging over my head. Okay. The first thing is Sarah and I are older than we wish to be, mm-hmm, 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 which mm-hmm. Uh, surfaces in multiple areas of our lives, but particularly surfaced in our conversation about Matthew Shepard. This is completely my error. It has been 22 years, not 12, since he was murdered. And I am so sorry that I got that wrong. 
The second thing we want to correct came up in my conversation with my friend Eric about guns. Now, you all had lots of feelings about that conversation Mm -hmm. and sent all Mm -hmm. kinds of information. We will return to talking about gun rights and the Second Amendment and the usefulness versus the danger of guns after the election. But for right now, many of you zeroed in on a statistic that Eric mentioned, that there were more people killed by knives last year than by guns. And that is incorrect. And I think this is a good example of how conversations with people we care about can go sometimes, because I didn't go back to Eric and say, hey, everyone says you're wrong. (laughs) I'm mad. I went back to him and said, hey, A lot of people are saying that they disagree with the statistic. Do you have a site for the source? Mm. And he gave me the site and we looked at it together and he said, no, I'm sorry. It is that more people are killed by like blunt force fists and things like that than by rifles. And then we had a conversation about why are you segmenting rifles from other firearms? And it led to a really interesting and fruitful discussion. And so I want to be sure to correct that stat on the show um, and also tell you that that's going to happen all the time in your lives. And I think it can be a door opener instead of a door closer in those discussions. So I really appreciate Eric for spending more time with me off the show on that issue and all of you for continuing that conversation. Well, and I think it's a perfect example of giving grace instead of assuming that he was purposely either trying to mislead or twisting the statistics to make a point, you went at him and gave him total and complete benefit of the doubt. Hey, this is what I'm hearing. What do you think? Instead of you're lying. You know, I think that that is a perfect example of when we posture in a way that assumes the worst in the other person, that is not, in the biggest understatement of the year, the best way to conversation and connection. Right. And I trust Eric's integrity 100 percent. I know that he hates that this happened and was he said, you're going to be able to correct this, right? Like, he's such (laughs) a good person. He would never deliberately mislead anyone. So we both want to issue that correction. Thank you for keeping us honest and accountable and for listening closely for those things. We hate to make errors here, and we appreciate that you all keep coming back and giving us the opportunity to correct them. Before we get started, we also wanted to invite you to our pre-election political therapy This Friday night, we are going to be together and we are going to have a general admission event that you can buy a ticket to with the link in the show notes where we're just going to we're just going to process y'all. We're going to be together. We're going to answer some questions. We're going to just work through some of our feelings about this election. We're also going to have a virtual meet and greet, which I'm very excited about. We're going to have a quick screen time call with you on video so we can see you. You can see us. You can tell us what you're thinking about the election or just share what the show means to you. These were our favorite moments in the live tour. Obviously, we're not doing a live event, so we're going to have this virtual live event. And we can't wait to see you there. Again, the link is in the show notes. And we're all going to need that political therapy because the night before Thursday is the final presidential debate in Nashville where we will be watching... Former Vice President Joe Biden and current President Donald Trump debate one final time. Um, we will be on Insta stories with our immediate reactions. And then, of course, we'll sh- share our more in-depth thoughts um, during the live event on Friday night. But, Beth, are you girding your loins for this final presidential debate on Thursday? I think it's really cute how many news outlets are making predictions about how this debate will go. Because the <laughs> idea that on Saturday or Sunday— 
what the Trump team says they're prepping him to do will be what he actually does on Thursday after he has spent lots of time doing rallies across the United States and getting in that zone. I just I think it's fun that we're still trying to do that. The reporting is all that we're going to see a kinder, gentler Donald Trump, one who is mm -hmm. really trying to appeal more to suburban women uh, who makes some jokes. And Mm -hmm. again, like. I get why that is the strategy. I cannot imagine that that's where we're going to be by Thursday. It's so interesting. Right now I'm reading Tension City, Jim Lair's memoir about hosting. I mean, he hosted like half of the presidential debates over the past 30 years, 40 years. And I'm reading that memoir, which is a part of our Extra Credit book club. You picked this one. I love this book. Yes. Yeah. It's really interesting because in some ways, it's always the paradox of history. Like in some ways you read... His insights or I love that he like follows up and interviews most of the people involved in these debates. And in some ways you you read through this history and you're like, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, there were debates where people felt like they were so contentious and they were not civil. You know, the vice presidential debate between Vice President Cheney and Senator John Edwards, like that one got really bad reviews and people felt like they were too contentious. Or there's the moment where Geraldine Ferraro went back at George H.W. Bush for basically trying to school her in foreign policy. They talk about that and sort of like what it was like for her to be a female vice presidential nominee. And then in some other ways, it's just we're in a total different universe. And because of the way he approaches, because of the way the president approaches everything, it's just themes are there, but they've been dialed up to like 15. And I, as I was reading all about these presidential debates, I kind of had this sadness because, you know, I remember as a little girl watching the debate between Clinton and Bush and Perot. I remember as a college student, do you remember the vice presidential debate between Joe Lieberman and Cheney was mm-hmm. in Danville? Um, at Center College near where we attended school in Kentucky, my now husband, then boyfriend. And I went and like there were protests and it was like such a, a like a fun environment. It was fun. Presidential elections to a certain personality type used to be fun. It was like we got to talk about things that that were important and then we all cared about. And it's not that they weren't absent of conflict. There was such an like a civic energy, a really fun civic energy. I think about how we even felt earlier this year being in Iowa for the Democratic primary. And I'm just so sad that he has stripped that of the last two elections. I am, you know, my my 11 year old does watch the debates with me, but it's not like we don't get to have conversations about some of the policy they're talking about because we're too busy talking about why we don't treat other people that way and why we don't we speak with kindness and why we care about our fellow citizens, even if they disagree with us. And I'm not saying those aren't important civic lessons, too, but there is a part of me as I as I read this memoir that's just sad that it has become so traumatizing to experience presidential politics when Donald Trump is participating that, you know, I have to talk about governors who are being threatened with kidnapping. And it's just, you know, I know there's a lot of things to grieve right now, but I am grieving that a little bit. I've always loved presidential elections. I have been a person who's been dialed into every second of them as as long as I can remember. I agree with you that 
a huge component of what has sucked some of the joy away for me is just the brute force that Trump brings into the room and mm-hmm. the way that it reminds you of every bully you've ever interacted with. Mm-hmm. I do think there are two other components this year that have really, in my mind, become much more pronounced. And one of those is just the money side. Yeah. Even the races that I'm most enthusiastic about, I have lost my enthusiasm for. Not that I'm going to change the way I vote. I'm still going to show up and vote. I'm ready to do this. But I just feel worn down by this process in a way I never have before because of the constant fundraising appeals and the juxtaposition of the constant fundraising appeals next to the articles about record-shattering fundraising Mm -hmm. and the fact that anytime we turn on network television, which is not super often in my house, but often enough for me to notice, it is just one political ad after another. And it's, it's just tiring. I don't look forward to getting my mail. Mail was like, life for me for the past Mm -hmm. six months uh, because it was connection to the outside world as we've been here, you know, basically sheltering in place from COVID. And now the mail is just all this ugliness. And it's overwhelming. I understand why people do it. I have compassion for the fact that this is, at this point, a race of just getting people out. And all you know to do is to just keep doing what you what you have, using the tools that are available to you. I understand that. In some ways, I've been thinking about this in relation to my mom's sickness because I feel such a sense of urgency around my mom's health. She's doing much better, by the way. But still, I feel a sense of urgency. Every day, I want to know everything I can know. And I wish all the time that there was something I could do about it because it would make me feel so much better. And so I understand on the campaign end that there is that same sense of intensity and urgency and personal responsibility, and you just want to do something. And so that leads people to sending letters and postcards and texts and calls and all of its important thank you if you are participating in that. At the same time, I'm really tired. And I imagine everybody involved with that process is too. And so I think we have serious conversations that need to take place about campaign finance and just how we're doing all this. And then I do think the third layer, which is brand new, is the pandemic. And just that there are such limited ways to have conversations. I I haven't talked as much to real people about this election as I would have in years past because I'm not hanging around the hallway with real people, you know? And and I think that there's an element of grief in that for me, too, because I used to have really interesting conversations with people about elections. Certainly, it comes up in the people I'm most connected to, but you have to choose so carefully whom you can be connected to right now that it's that it's hard. So I think there's a lot of sadness around this election, some of it having to do with the president and some of it not. Well, and I think the other layer is our understanding of foreign intervention in our elections, our understanding of disinformation and the fact that it's not just a civic exercise between Americans anymore, if it ever was. And we certainly are more aware of that. I think this New York Post story, I don't even know if story is the right word for it. I mean, story as in story time, let's make something up, sounds relevant. But for those of you who have not been following this, the New York Post shared a story, two sources, Rudy Giuliani, who 
confessed this weekend that no other outlet would take it. Steve Bannon was the other name source. He's currently under indictment for fraud. Other third-party news source has been able to confirm the story. The person who worked primarily on it refused to have his name on it. One of the people whose name was on it is new to the post as a former producer for Sean Hannity and didn't really work on the story. So, you know, it fits the bill of sort of classic disinformation coming particularly from Russia. Experts in Russian disinformation say like it checks all checks all the Important boxes for the types of stories they try to disrupt elections with, leaked emails, child pornography. I mean, you name it. It's got all of it. And it's just, I think there's, you know, it's the paradox of everything in this election. In some ways, it's so depressing that this is what we have to watch out for. And in some ways, it's encouraging that we've gotten so much better at looking out for it. But I think this idea that, like, there are foreign actors in our elections in such a clear and present way is another thing that really affects my perception of this campaign. You know, as we're having conversations about this stuff uh, with friends and family members, I think it is important to note that mainstream news sources are reporting on this story. Mm -hmm. They are just not reporting on the underlying ideas that the New York Post communicated. Mm -hmm. But no one's hiding from it. I think there's this sense sometimes that every major outlet is being really protective of Joe Biden. These are still newspapers and television stations who need people to be engaged with them. If they had some blockbuster story they could confirm about something that's bad wrong in the Joe Biden campaign or with his family, you best believe it would run on the front page. There's no way that stuff like that gets buried in this news environment. So we put some links in the show notes, Business Insider, CNN, New York Times. Credible outlets are covering this. What they're covering is how it came to be that the New York Post published the story. That's really different from ducking it and hiding. Yeah, no, I agree. And I was really disturbed by how even in some of my more progressive circles, the story was being shared as like, well, is this true? What do we think? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Well, first of all, if something comes up and you're like, is this a October surprise? What's going on? And you can't find stories because when this story first broke, it was it's not like it was on the cover of The New York Times or The Washington Post, which is your first signal. But the reason it wasn't there is because they were doing the time to report on it. It's not like they immediately came out and said, oh, The New York Post is bullshit. Don't believe this. They went and did their own reporting on the actual story. Um, And that took a few days. And I think that it's always important to be aware of that. Don't, again, like you always say, there are no scoops in 2020. Like if you, if they're not reporting, then give them time because that's because they're doing actual reporting and checking sources and making sure the story is true instead of running with it like they did, honestly, in 2016, a lot of the times without confirming or without thinking like what is going on here. So again, I mean, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's like it's depressing that this is still happening. But I do think the hopeful note here is that we are getting so much better, particularly the media. But I think citizens in general at recognizing for what it is and at least pausing, taking a beat and a breath and making sure that we know what we're talking about. I also think maintaining some sense of prioritization in this race as voters is really important because for me, I I am enthusiastically voting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And I feel 
0% obligation to be defensive of anything relating to Hunter Biden's board service on a Ukrainian energy company. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't, I'm not prioritizing that issue. I am not looking at my friends and family members who are supporting Donald Trump and saying, but really, how do you not care about Ivanka's business dealings in China? Like, that's just not the top issue for me. Mm-mm. And I think that's another way to approach these conversations. We don't have to slug it out over this report no. because it's it's just not what anyone's voting on this year. I think this is reflective of a pattern you will see in lots of, if I'm being honest, conserv- conservative media outlets, which is to pull something extreme from the periphery and demand that everyone in the center of that spectrum, take responsibility for it. And I think it can be Hunter Biden. I think it can be, you know, over the weekend on Instagram, there was a lot of chatter about a video posted by a pro-reproductive rights group called Shout Your Abortion. And all of a sudden, any woman who had been sharing that she was going to vote for Joe Biden, particularly in relationship to evolving views on abortion, was then expected to be responsible for this video on this um, Instagram page because what? Because to a group and a citizen both use the words pro-choice or pro-life, and then all of a sudden now you're responsible for that. Like, I think that that is such a distracting, disconnecting, and honestly, like, not in good faith strategy. And you see this on the this this with celebrities too. Well, this this progressive celebrity said this. Well, how do you feel about that? I feel like that celebrity's not on my ballot and I'm not responsible for their behavior. You know, I think that there is this attempt to go all the way to the extremes, find something incendiary and then demand anybody who's voting democratic or voting republican be responsible for that behavior and I think that that is not that's not a conversation. That's a trap. And here's the other thing I want to say. I'm also not saying people shouldn't report on those issues that don't rise to the top of my priorities as a voter. There is a vetting process that the media is responsible for. If there's there there about Hunter Biden, it will come out and it should, Mm -hmm. even if it's not the most important issue. Whatever gets reported between now and Election Day about the Trump family and their business dealings, I think it's relevant. It's still not the top issue for me. But it's important. I really hate hearing from people that they think Joe Biden has been like hiding and snoozing during this race because he's not out doing everything Donald Trump is. This man has been reported on for decades. Mm -hmm. And so there has been a vetting process and there continues to be one. The other thing I just want to say about that, since it's since I've brought it up because it's clearly bothering me is that the Biden campaign is using surrogates very effectively. This is not a sleepy campaign. It's a dispersed campaign meeting the moment of the pandemic. And the Biden campaign, I think, is showing us a way of governing that is not centered on one personality. Mm-hmm. And I like that and I want it. I like having days where I honestly don't think about Joe Biden. I would like to have more days like that where I honestly don't have to have a thought about the president, but maybe I'm thinking about someone in the cabinet today, or maybe I'm thinking about someone in Congress who's leading an effort. So I just think we're having conversations centered around the wrong questions, just like what you said about shot your abortion. Like, great, report on that, understand that it's out there, and also understand that it's one group in the midst of 
50% of the world's population in terms of women, and there's going to be a diversity of feelings about that. Whether you're talking to pro-life or pro-choice women, there's going to be a diversity of feelings about that group. And so bring it up, be aware of it, and then put it in its place and move on. I think that's so true. I think the I love the addition of I want to have days where I don't think about the president because I'm thinking or working on something else because I'm focused on my own school district because I care deeply about climate change and I'm and I'm working on that or I'm talking to my fellow citizens about that. Like often I worry that the language of I want to not think about the president means I want to stop thinking about politics. And the truth is that our politics are so broken and the problems are so big. We cannot have that luxury again. And I know that's hard to hear, and I know that that's something we're going to have to to work through and stay connected with each other to continue to face long past Election Day. But the way that he functions at these rallies in particular, saying things like lock her up about Governor Whitmer, who faced credible threats to her life and the lives of her children, is so disruptive And so harmful, it not only creates problems like the growing power of domestic terrorist groups that we have to pay attention to, but it just sucks all the energy away. Like real leadership is empowering people and opening up energy for them in a democracy to solve these problems, not sucking up all the energy and creating new ones. And like just watching the way he's behaved at these rallies the last few days— or the last four years, is just so upsetting and so disheartening. And the thing that brings me the most hope is that I think it's becoming even more clear that that is his only approach. You know, I I told myself, and I said on this podcast, and I agree with the people who said the more desperate he gets, the more he will act out. And I think I thought... The more desperate he gets, the more dangerous he gets. And I don't think that's untrue. I think there are aspects of the fact that he is president now and that he has the power of the federal government within his grasp that makes him more dangerous than 2016, without a doubt. But I also think that the more desperate he gets, the more ridiculous he gets and the more apparent it becomes that the emperor has no clothes. And the way that he talks and the way chanting lock her up about a governor who had a domestic terrorist plot against her. You know, it just, and maybe this is just me, and maybe it's just me inside my bubble, but it feels so transparent and ridiculous at times. Contrast that to Governor Whitmer, who I find so much hope in because Mm -hmm. of the way she's handled all of this. I can't adequately express my level of appreciation for how Governor Whitmer has said repeatedly, this has been really hard and awful. We have a lot of political leaders who would never say that, who would interpret that as a sign of weakness. Yep. A lot of political leader, leaders who would just say, well, it comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. And Governor Whitmer has said, this has really been hard. I've had to talk to my daughters about people with assault rifles walking around our property mm. to check it out. I've had to educate my children about these threats, and that has been hard. And it it has been discouraging, and I'm worried that it will discourage other people from serving in public office. Like, I really appreciate her saying those hard things, while at the same time standing firm in her approach to governance and saying, my focus this whole time has been on public safety. 
And it is discouraging that I am having to worry about my personal safety because I have been worried about the safety of others. I just appreciate she's calm, but she is honest about how this is impacting her and her family. And I think that is extremely hopeful as we say that we want more politicians who are honest and transparent and forthright and authentic. I just, I really respect the way that she has responded to all this. I respect that she calls him out, too, and says this Mm -hmm. isn't helping. I mean, it would be very easy to take a much more kind of focus grouped approach to this, whether she where she either completely ignores him or she puts it all at his feet, but says it does, it's no skin off her back. And she is not doing either one of those things. And, and I really admire it. Well, and let me say something else about this particular campaign season that is different, but that is giving me hope. I love that people are starting to use the words election season instead of election day. Because 28 million Americans have already voted. And I love this. I thought that I (laughs) really wanted to see everybody's Election Day stickers and post on Election Day just to really get a concentrated dose of that patriotic hope and civic engagement. Mea culpa, I was wrong. The steady stream of lines and citizens voting and posting their stickers. Also, side note, people who are in charge of the state stickers have really stepped up their design game this year. I see you and I appreciate you and I love it. Like seeing all that and seeing everybody just so joyful going out there, not letting anything stop them. The videos people are posting like, Oh, my God, it's beautiful. I I want to live here all the time. I know we can't vote in perpetuity, but I love election season. I love having these several weeks of watching people just go out there, get it done. I think it is so energizing and so empowering. And I think that we are looking at historic turnout. And that brings me so much joy And it gives me so much hope that we're not just going to say, "Okay, we got him out of here. We're done. I see in Americans across this country the dedication and the belief that our work is just beginning. And it feels amazing. Big shout out here to Kentucky's Republican Secretary of State, Michael Adams, who's really embraced this gotten a lot of criticism from within his party for it, but he's really Mm -hmm. embraced election season. He tweets in a fun way about it. What's your election day going to be? This is great. Like, I I really appreciate that he's worked with our Democratic governor and we have this across the aisle, very legitimate approach to our elections. This, we don't go backward from this, right? This cannot Mm. be just the pandemic way of voting. When you see this many people respond, I think we have to say we want this. We want more of this in future elections, pandemic or not. And so I'm excited about the innovation that could come from this horrible time that we've been through because you are seeing Americans want to vote. When you make it where they can, they want to do it, and they will. We have one more moment of hope for you before we move on to the main segment of the show. Brent Dickman is a fan of the show, daughter of a listener. Y'all, she made the most amazing short documentary film called Disconnected about what it's like to be a young adult in this social media environment. I watched it. I cannot recommend it enough. So here is an audio clip 
of Bren talking about Disconnected, and the link is in the show notes so that you can watch it yourself. Hi, Sarah and Beth. My name is Bryn. I'm a high school senior in Colorado Springs. I have been making short artistic travel videos and posting them on Instagram for about four years, but two years ago, my interest in pursuing a bigger, more serious project grew. I applied for a summer documentary filmmaking program where teens learn to make short documentaries with the help of professionals. When my application was rejected, I realized that I had become really passionate and curious about the topic that I had selected for my documentary, the effects of screen time on teenagers. Screens are still relatively new, and because my generation is the first to grow up with constant access to them, I wanted to dig deeper and learn more about how screens affect not only our everyday lives, but our young minds. I decided that I didn't need to be a part of a program to make a film. Instead, I relied on my local library for filmmaking equipment and resources, and I made it on my own. The film, called Disconnected, explores the effects of screen time on teenagers through my 16-year-old eyes. It features interviews from parents, teens, and experts discussing how today's teens juggle relationships with social media, video games, and TV. Teens share their experiences with screens, ranging from teens who despise their phones to teens who admit to using their phones as an escape from reality. I would like Disconnected to be a resource for thriving in a digital age, a guide for parents and teens alike. You can view the film at disconnectedfilm.com, where there is more information about it, links to more information about managing screen time, and a blog that follows my personal journey managing screen time during a pandemic. The film is just 16 minutes long and appropriate for all ages, making it a great discussion starter for families. Thank you so much for taking an interest in Disconnected and sharing it with your audience. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. 
And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash pantsuit. Okay, Sarah, we're going to do something that I'm surprised that we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to take a minute and cruise through the polls. What I love about doing this is it's a good way to not only focus on the presidential election, but to remember what's going on state by state and in our House and Senate races as well. So should we start with governors? It's so easy to miss governors. And boy, especially in a pandemic, Your governor has an enormous amount of power and influence over what's going on where you are. There are some gubernatorial seats on the ballot this time. Lots of incumbents. So many incumbents, which I think is going to be really interesting because of the absence of federal leadership around COVID. There has had to be a lot of state leadership. So we have about 11 governors up for re-election. And it's like almost all incumbents up for re-election. Now, in Montana, they have two new candidates because Steve Bullock was term limited and he's running for Senate. And in Utah, Gary Herbert isn't running because he's been their governor for 10 years. Holy mess. That's a long time to be governor. It looks like the lieutenant governor, Spencer Cox, is pulling way ahead. So they're going to have new leadership. But you're talking about the leadership of Jay Inslee in Washington state through the wildfires on the ballot. Um, Roy Cooper, the Democratic governor of North Carolina, on the ballot. I'm really interested in the race in West Virginia with Jim Justice. Like you just have a lot of governors who were making really public health decisions, and they're going to be on the ballot. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how people respond. Republicans are favored to win I think, seven of these contests. Did you know that Vermont has a Republican governor? I just want to hover for a second on Vermont having a Republican governor and the fact that Vermont's governor has to run every two years. Oh, that's awful. Two-year terms are awful. Saying that says a person who lived in a two-year term. That doesn't surprise me at all because I have learned not to be surprised about anything with when it comes to Vermont and New Hampshire, if I'm being honest. Like, they're just they're doing their own thing. They handle things differently. They're pretty independent. So, yeah, I don't know if I am surprised by that. I think it shows you some of the long-term effects of having elections that don't require people to affiliate with a party. 
Mm-hmm. I just wonder psychologically if if you don't have to register as Republican or Democrat, if you are just more inclined. I mean, v- Vermont would certainly bear out. That state turns out heavily for Bernie Sanders in a statewide race and then has a Republican governor. It's fascinating and it's important. And, and I think there's something really healthy about it. Uh, Phil Scott, the Republican governor of Vermont, I became very interested in because I was surprised to see that state red on the gubernatorial map. And he is a pretty moderate Republican. He is uh, supportive of um, LGBTQ rights, for example. He's never supported Donald Trump. And it's just it's the kind of Republican that most people think don't doesn't exist anymore. And the fact that he's mm-hmm. the governor of a state gives me a lot of hope. So really interesting to see that. And and I agree with you, Sarah, like Indiana's governor. I'm interested in how people vote, given that he's handled the covid pandemic uh, in ways that I find to be sort of sporadic. Like he mm. he seems to like talk a better game than he's willing to regulate. So. This is going to be really fascinating, especially in Montana, where you have Steve Bullock now on the ballot again, but for Senate, how that's going to impact that gubernatorial seat. I'm interested to see, too. Well, and I look forward, you know, decades from now, maybe it won't take that long, to the political science slash public health studies about the differing approaches of governors who were up for reelection in 2020 and those who were not. Like, mm-hmm. that will be... Super interesting. I'm super excited because I'm a dork about all that data and how that plays out. You know, the the governor of Vermont reminds me a lot of the governor of Massachusetts. And I think that moderate Republican governors in Democratic states, I got no beef with them. I really don't have any beef with them. And I, I feel the same way about Democratic governors in Republican states. Absolutely. Now, I don't, I don't love it when they're – I think we have a narrative in America that you're seeing bubble up in some of the Senate races right now because – certain parties are getting desperate, which is, well, we have to, you have to have divided power. That's how you keep people in check. And I think if both parties are operating in good faith, that can be true. And I think if I'm being honest, you see that more in Democratic states with Republican governors than you see in Republican states with Democratic governors. There's less good faith from the Republican legislators when it comes to Democratic governors in red states. There's a lot of manipulation like you saw in North Carolina. There's a lot of midnight dealings like you see like you've seen in Kentucky, even in Texas to a certain extent. So I'm not I'm down for divided government when both people are when both parties are acting in good faith, which I do think you see in those blue states. And I think that's why you see good leadership. So should we talk about the Senate? Oh, I'm super excited about the Senate. (laughs) I could talk about the Senate all day long. Well, it's interesting because I think if you had asked me a year ago, would there be any chance of Republicans losing control of the Senate? I would have said no. You wouldn't have been the only one, sister. Everybody was saying that. And now I will be very surprised if Republicans don't lose control of the Senate. It's just amazing Mm -hmm. the, the turn over the past year. Well, and let's talk about the turn in the last few weeks. Ben Sass. Blessings. John Cornyn, blessings. Don't roll in here two weeks before Election Day and say, well, listen, I've just been in disagreement with him the whole time. The only people that get to hold that, the only senator, truly, I believe, that can hold up that mantle and say, I have criticized him openly and taken the heat that comes from it is Mitt Romney. And the rest of y'all are talking some Election Day smack that I can't believe anybody would believe. And the fact that the Republican Senate leadership is acting surprised that there's a trickle down from the terrible presidency of Donald Trump to Republican senators and then trying to shift their tone and abandon him at this point is outrageous and laughable. I feel very strongly about this. 
it is the continuance of a theme where we have elected officials who do not exercise the power that we give them. Mm-hmm. There is so much lamenting in sort of inside baseball Capitol Hill journalism about how little power rank and file senators feel they have. I just want to pause on the term rank and file senator. That's yeah, outrageous. Out That's outrageous. There are a hundred people in this country and you're one of them and you feel like you're the rank and file. Stop that. The Senate rules themselves do not vest as much power in Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer as Senate convention does. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put a real wonky look at how the Senate functions in the show notes if you would like to spend some time on this. Yes, it is easy for McConnell to prevent legislation from coming into the Senate. Yes, it is easy for party leadership to steer the ship, but easy isn't getting it done. And the fact is our elected representatives have more power and authority than they choose to use. And that's been true, and it's been on a trajectory for at least 10 years. So I really want us to have a rowdier Senate. I can't believe I'm saying that. This is not my personality. (laughs) But we need a rowdier Senate where some people just say, no, like we are going to vote on this. What do I have to do to get this to the floor? The legislative graveyard, as people like to talk about with Senator McConnell, is a real thing. There are hundreds of bills, including 10, that are the kinds of things we talk about here all the time, that if the American public were polled on, when they are polled on it, have broad bipartisan support, campaign finance issues, voting rights issues, gerrymandering, terms. There are so many things that the Senate could be taking up that the House has already passed and they refuse to. So when people like Senator Sass and Senator Cornyn want to tell us that really they have been so discouraged this whole time. Well, do something about it, friend. you got a lot more power to than the people that are on that phone call with you. Pick it up and do something with it or hand it over to somebody who will. Mm -hmm. And that's really why, even as the polling looks like such a hard climb for Amy McGrath, for MJ Heger, for some of our favorites who are running. Those are the people we need in the Senate because they will not for a second let a party leader tell them that a bill's not coming to the floor. They will do what oh, it takes to get like it to there. Oh, I would like to see them try. I would, I too. would very much enjoy someone trying to tell Amy or MJ what to do. On the in fact, I, yeah, I want a video. I'd like some sort of TikTok summary. Thank you. Here's all I have to say about that. It's not all I have to say about this. I could talk about this for an hour because it makes me so angry. They're full of it. It's really not even just about the legislative calendar. They didn't criticize Donald Trump because they were worried about a primary challenge from his base, and they don't step to Mitch McConnell because they need his fundraising. Make no mistake, those were political calculuses about their own future and not their constituents, what their constituents want, needed, or were depending on. And if you think that the fallout will just come from your support of Donald Trump, if you think that people will not remember that you rushed through the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett in record time and let COVID relief sit there, then you guys are denser than I thought. I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree oh, with you. Oh, I mean, I just, what do they, I, I, there's a part of me that thinks they're still living in 2000, I don't know, 10, 12. I don't know if they think, if there's a little bit that, the Republican leadership likes being in the minority because they can just be the party of no because they have shown an inability or an unwillingness to present actual priorities beyond tax cuts. Because that's the thing. Like I was I my husband and I were talking about this and I thought like. 
is this really going to be a generation-wide fallout long past the Donald Trump presidency? Or will they just pivot and go back to the, you know, Tea Party, government's the problem, government's the problem, government's the problem. See, we told you government's the problem. I just can't fathom that will work this time. Maybe I'm too overly optimistic. But what I see in our listeners, what I see when I read articles in the New York Times, like they had this weekend about suburban women voters, is a Pandora you cannot put back in the box. When you have told a woman for decades that she can't be a good Christian and vote Democrat, and then she does and realizes her faith is intact and her life is fine, like you can't go back. And so much of that opposition was saying, all that matters is this. And I think the problems facing our country are getting so large and so loud. Once a voter, and I don't think they're just women voters reexamining their beliefs on this or their approach to voting. Once a, a female voter turns and says, now I'm going to try it this way. It's not like the next election she's going to go back to voting the exact same way. Like, to me, this is like, I don't know if the if the Republican leadership sees the writing on the wall as far as the future of the party, but it's going to go way past Senate control in 2020 and the White House in 2020. I think a lot will depend on how power is exercised. If you have Democratic Senate, Democratic House, Democratic president, a lot of what happens from there will depend on how the power is exercised. And historically, in a situation like that, two years later, you would have a shift at least in control of the House, right? And I don't know what will happen. I do think that there is a reckoning that Republicans have been talking about since at least 2012 Mm -hmm. in terms of where the party is on race and where the party is on reproductive rights and and where the party is on um, marriage equality and non-discrimination. There are things that I think just culturally we are moving past the backlash which is probably why we have such an intense backlash right now. That's not an original thought by any stretch. I do think in this election, a good night for Republicans is keeping the Senate close versus having lost a lot of seats. And I also think we should prepare for the fact that there are races that are getting a lot of publicity that are still toss-up races. I don't know if Jamie Harrison is going to beat Lindsey Graham. I think there's a real shot at him doing that. And that in and of itself is a big story. And that will matter even if he doesn't win. That will matter. To make that much progress, Amy McGrath has given Mitch McConnell the run of his life. And if she doesn't win, which I sincerely hope she does, but I know it's a long shot, if she doesn't win, that will still have mattered. I get really Mm -hmm. frustrated with the people tweeting about the races that they think there is no shot in, acting like we should just give up on them. No, you make a dent, you make progress because this isn't the only election and it's not the only time. What people are doing in races all over the country is going to have a really long tail like you were talking about. And I also think there is a shot in some of those races that people are riding off. Will my husband ever, ever, ever let me live down that I bought airplane tickets to Hillary Clinton's inauguration? No. Does that mean you should trust my positive outlook on the current polling? Perhaps not. Perhaps you should not. (laughs) But I am frustrated with the idea that This positive polling is just like the positive polling from 2016, and 
Donald Trump could still win. Donald Trump could still win. But this is not 2016. I don't think it's even comparable to 2016. I don't think Joe Biden is the same candidate as Hillary Clinton. I don't think the media or the citizen awareness of disinformation and foreign intervention is the same as 2016. I don't think social media's handling of disinformation is the same as 2016. I don't think that the enthusiasm (laughs) is anywhere near the gap we saw in 2016. I think there was this narrative that Donald, we're going to give Donald Trump a try. We'll just see how it goes. That is non-existent, obviously, when you have Donald Trump as an incumbent president. I just, that sort of storyline really bothers me. Like I read the other day, despite the fact that Joe Biden has been up in the polling the entire time, the majority of Americans still think Donald Trump is going to win. Y'all, we got to talk about that. Well, I understand why you feel that way. And I don't disagree with anything that you've said. The piece that I just have to add in for myself mentally is all those things that are different from 2016 are different, but we don't have anything that tells us what that means. We don't have any reasonable modeling based on demonstrated past results to know how a pandemic is going to shift this election, to know how our understanding of disinformation, to know how the shift in social media response to disinformation will shift. We Like, I understand why news outlets and particularly why people who work on campaigns are hesitant to say, yeah, it's looking good because or it's looking really bad because there are still so many things that are just question marks. I think there's also this aspect of me that sees stuff and thought and thinks, Of course, even with the pandemic, like, no, we don't have modeling for what happens in a pandemic. But anyone who has lived through this pandemic through March should not be surprised that senior citizens and women are falling away from Donald Trump's leadership during the pandemic in droves because they have been the ones disproportionately affected. Senior citizens, because they are vulnerable to coronavirus and women because they're holding up the entire world right now. Like, I just, there's a part of me that's like, of course, of course. Doesn't this make perfect sense? Doesn't it make sense that if this is a referendum on his handling of COVID and then he gets COVID right before the election, his numbers are going to bottom out even more? Like, I think there's still a lot of unknowns. But then to me, every time something we gain more information, it fits into to, to what I know to be true. And that that doesn't mean that I'm not still just as invested. Listen, I gave money to Doug Jones the other day. I'm here for that. I gave money to, Cl- no, what was it, Carolyn Bordeaux, who's running for Mark Meadows' old seat. Like, I think the the other piece of data to come out of this that will be fascinating, I think the fundraising is through the roof, not just about enthusiasm, but because during a pandemic, that's something you can do. Mm-hmm. I agree with that 100%. So... There's just a part of it, too, that, like, I, I don't feel like I see anything that go, that makes me go, hmm, that's an outlier. Like, just to me, like, things are that, that go in the column of, like, this is what seems true to me, and they're falling in place. Again, did I buy plane tickets last time? Yes, I did. <laughs> it's just with me forever. But I don't know. It feels different this time in, like, every humanly way possible. So let's talk about the House briefly. The headline for me anytime I'm talking about the House is that of 435 seats, 
there are 22 elections considered to be true toss-ups. Outrageous. That's That's outrageous. outrageous. None of us should feel good about that. That completely deprives us of a responsive, accountable government. And to me, one of the big reasons that I would like Democrats to have control of the House and Senate is because I believe Democrats are likely to move forward H.R. 1, which has been sitting around forever, about Mm -hmm. gerrymandering. We have got to do better than 22 out of 435 seats being competitive. We need more representatives, y'all. We don't need to just... I'm going I'm to reclaim pack as a positive verb. Uh, I want to pack the court. I want to pack the House of Representatives. 435 people to represent 300 million is not math I'm comfortable with. That's got to change. And look, I think that if your instinct is, no, that's a problem, it's good to back away and ask why. And I say this as a person whose instinct is, no, let's keep it the way it is. Um, Sarah has really worked on me about this number. I tell my daughter whenever we're talking about belief systems that I don't ever want to have a belief that makes me afraid of new information. Mm. If I translate that to the civic sphere away from faith or something like that, and I translate that to the civic sphere, sphere, I don't want to have a political ideology that makes me afraid of more people voting or makes me afraid of more people being represented in government. That feels like the same kind of closed intellectual loop that would lead me to have a faith that prevents me from taking in new information. I think that's a problem. I don't I, I don't think we should look at so many people voting early and think anything other than, wow, that makes me proud. I'm so mm-hmm. glad that's happening. And so when I blow that out to structural changes like allowing Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. to be adequately represented in our government, I think what would make me fearful of more people being democratically represented? I I just think that cannot be a problem. And if it is, then we've really got to ask why. And I don't like any of the available answers to why. There, To me, when I dig into that, everything gets to something dark. Mm-hmm. And so uh, dark and disrespectful and antithetical to what it means to live in a, in a society where you're supposed to be democratically represented within your republic. So to me, the House will probably remain in democratic control. I've not seen one forecast that shows Republicans taking the House back. Uh, but that's just like not the biggest problem in my mind. The setup of the House is fundamentally broken. I think when I look through all of this, like, listen, I've been a Democrat since I was 18. I'm excited about the concept, prospect of Democratic control of the House and the Senate and the presidency. But I understand not everyone is there with me. I get that. It presents a very difficult challenge for Democratic leadership because we did this before with Obamacare. We tried to give, um, you know, the benefit of the doubt and assume good faith in the other side. I don't know if I would argue for that this time because of the, what the leadership has exhibited, the Republican leadership has exhibited over the past four years and even the eight years during Obama. All that to say, um, if you are a person who is not excited by the prospect of Democratic control in the House and, and the presidency, I think I would just point to the other thing that gives me hope here, which is just there's energy for change. And I can't imagine many Americans 
look at the state of our politics and the state of our government and think everything's perfect. Let's keep it the same. And even if you disagree with the type of change that the Democratic Party typically argues for, and that is completely and totally valid, what I hope comes from this election and from the down ballot elections from in the Senate, in the House with your with governors, with state reps and state house representatives, with city commissions and city councils and board of education is energy for change. I want both sides at the table in good faith saying we don't like how things are and we want them to be different. I hope that that's what comes out of this election and I hope that that energy not only flows down the ballot, but out into elected officials and community boards and legislators in our states and in our Congress and in your conversations and everywhere because we need it. We need it desperately. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. 
Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Okay, so you had an issue with beloved Jane and some YouTube viewing late into the night. And our inboxes filled up with people saying, I'm struggling with the same thing. And I thought I would share my approach because it is very different than yours. Your approach is built around trust. That is awesome. And it's not that I don't trust my kids. But I have, in particular, one son who struggles with ADHD and impulse control. So my approach to screens is very much built around setting him up to make a good choice. For better or for worse, with all of my boys, I can't just trust them to turn them off and and follow the, the screen time limits without some processes. So I thought I would share some that have worked for us in the past for people out there struggling with this. Unfortunately, there is not one size fits all approach to this screen situation. I know I'm saying something that we all totally and completely understand at this point. So it's really changed in our household depending on what device my kids are like super into. So for a while, my two older sons had Nintendo DSs. Now, the Nintendo Switches have masterful parental controls that I don't understand why we can't institute on everything. But that aside, the DS didn't have any controls. It doesn't connect to the Internet, blah, blah, blah. So a thing that worked really well for us for a while is we would just charge the DSs once a week. You want to run them down on Monday, run the battery down on Monday, but you're not going to get to charge it again. It's a very easy thing to control. I would keep the chargers myself. And I was the only one who could charge the chargers in. That was a very good approach for a while. Alas, we did not just stay on the Nintendo DSs. And so now we have a Disney Circle, which we actually received through sponsorship of the show. I love it. So the Disney Circle controls through the router and not through the device. So you can set screen time limits for iPads, phones, TVs. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but all our kids watch is basically... Roku streaming. And so that's controlled through the internet. And so I can pause TVs. I can pause the internet and specific devices so that they can't continue to watch them. I can set screen time limits. I can set filter limits. I love that approach. Now, before we got the circle, I legitimately have a metal lockbox that I lock remotes up in (laughs) at the end of the night because I was having the middle of the night situation. People sneaking out in the middle of the night and going and watching TV. So I would lock, literally lock the remotes up because you can't control the remote from the actual television box. So these are all sort of strategies that I've used interchangeably, either literally locking them up or setting filters and screen time limits through circles or, like I said, through the switch, which has, again, masterful, masterful, everybody in the universe in control of screen time limitations or filters. Please go study the Nintendo Switch in detail. That'd be great. Thank you so much. But I just want to share that because, you know, it's so hard. It's constantly evolving. I wish we could just hit a moment and be like, dust it off. We're done. We figured it out, this screen time thing. But it's something like I spend way too much of my life thinking about and working with and trying to figure out so that um, my kids have healthy limits in place. I had a good system in, in 
place. And then, of course, it all got blown up with virtual schooling. But I just thought, you know, because I have such uh, an impulse problem that we're trying to, like, really work with our boys on dealing with, I just thought I would share our screen time approach. And if you don't know the genesis of this conversation, it's a good reason to go sign up for our newsletter right now because I shared in our newsletter. Basically, I asked Jane to write a report after she had been improperly using technology. And so I wrote one for her as well that included links and right. assignments. And it has actually been really good. And it's prompted. And you watched Social Dilemma together, which I'm definitely going to do. That was an excellent idea. It blew her mind too. And it was interesting because I don't feel like there were ideas in it that I haven't communicated to her in some way before. But the part of it that annoyed me, that vignette with the family kind of personifying algorithms, really worked for her. That makes so much sense to me. She really got it. And we had really interesting conversations about it. And so I I was happy with with the approach that I took to this problem. But I I think it's good. I mean, we have to parent. There's no one right way to parent. And different kids are different, different families. So I'm so glad that you shared that. The one thing that I just want to mention before we go outside of politics, but not really, <laughs> uh, my text messages this morning when I woke up were all friends who were just like, I'm done with everything. I'm so tired. You texted me, Sarah. And said, I just need to announce that I hate this week. <laughs> And as you were texting that, I had another long thread with friends where my last contribution before I went to bed had been, I don't really want to do anything. I don't want to mm-hmm. eat. I don't mm-hmm. want to watch TV. I don't want to leave my house. Yep. I don't want to stay here anymore. Like there's nothing yep. that I really want. And so I just think it's healthy and important to say out loud that if that's what your text messages look like, you're not alone. Not alone. Um, If you don't even have the energy for those text messages or you feel disconnected Mm -hmm. from people, you're not alone either. We are all struggling. I kept having moments over the weekend where I thought, why am I so tired? But the answer is just because of course you are. Of course you are. Like this has just been an incredibly difficult, exhausting year in ways that we don't have good tools for. I'm struggling. In addition to this podcast, I do coaching of clients, and I feel like my toolbox is empty because we just don't have tools to meet the demands of this year on our energy, the level of, like, I don't know, atmospheric grief that we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. It's it's too much, and it's a lot. And so, It makes me feel better to step back and say, this is not that I'm doing something wrong. And there is not a fix to this that I can do. And so the gentlest way to go through it is to remember that I'm in a large boat with lots of other people. Nobody has a a secret sauce to, like, hack this year. Yeah, this is... uh... My exact struggle this weekend, I didn't want to do anything. I felt completely unmotivated and just tired. And my body is doing what my body often does. You know, I this is going to come as a surprise to everyone who listens to this show. The inside of my brain is kind of intense. And so I can convince myself of a lot of things. See previous conversation about Hillary Clinton's inauguration airplane tickets. And I do this with stress, right? I do the classic, like, well, it's, I'm so blessed. I have this. This is going well. I don't have anything to complain about. And then my body just keeps, like, 
like knocking ever so gently on my door and being like, you're cute. Like you're cute. You're real cute. And I love that you have this positive outlook and you're trying to keep perspective. And also, I am holding all this tension and I'm going to politely remind you the first couple of times and then I'm going to lock your jaw up and you're going to have a killer headache until because you're not listening to my polite reminders like my I feel like my body is just carrying so much tension and I'm just not I had a conversation with a girlfriend this weekend where we were both just like it's just too much like it's just it's too much and even in scenarios where you feel like you have it under control or it's it's not that bad for you it just doesn't matter it's just there's just so much tension and stress and anxiety in the air like i even think with the election like i read those polls every day and i know they're positive and still i have to acknowledge just the the unknown and how much anxiety revolves around this election and that we're reliving the trauma of the last time we thought we knew things were going to go okay and then they didn't like it's just it is it's so much and it's it's feels like the most intense weight on our shoulders and that are already scrunched up to our earlobes with tension and anxiety and it is it, it is helpful to just articulate it and to understand you're not alone And we'll be with you all week in a variety of forms as we're all not alone together. You can check in with us on social media. We'll have a new episode of The Nuanced Life out for you tomorrow. On Thursday, we'll be on Instagram reacting to the presidential debate. And on Friday, we can be here together in a big community for pre-election political therapy. Get your tickets in the show notes. Everybody have the best week available to you. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsy Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. David McWilliams. Allie Edwards. Martha Brunitsky. Amy Whited. Janice Elliott. Sarah Ralph. Barry Kaufman. Jeremy Sequoia. Lori Lodow. Emily Neasley. Allison Luzader. Tracy Putoff. Julie Haller. Jared Minson. Marnie Johansson. The Creeps! Sherry Blim. Tiffany Hasler. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Linda Daniel. Joshua Allen. And Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.